Hi guys, my name is Jason Mountford and this is The Hedge Podcast. Thanks so much for being with me on another week, another episode. And I've got an interview this week. I'm joined by Tom Poulter, who is the Head of Quantitative Research at Square Mile Investment Consulting. This is a really good interview. Um, it's a deep dive into investments. We, I get Tom's take on what's happening around the world, what's happening with inflation, what's happening with the stock market. We talk a bit about cryptocurrency. We talk about ethical investing. We talk about all sorts of different stuff. There's loads in here coming from somebody who is, if you caught the episode I did uh, a few weeks back, probably a month back now with Mark LaMonica, um, it's a similar kind of episode to that. You know, just like Mark, uh, Tom is somebody who's deep in industry, doing research, spending all day kind of really looking deep into different markets, different investments, different companies, and giving takes on it, doing the research that gets passed on to people like me, advisors, professional investors who can then act on it. So, so it's a really interesting episode. Um, there's lots in here to to, to take from it, um, whether you are looking to make decisions on your own investments or just getting a bit more of an understanding about what uh, what kind of goes on behind the behind the scenes of, of investment houses. As always, I'd be really keen to get your feedback on the episode. If you have questions that come up from this one, I'd love to hear them. Uh, the best way to get in touch with me is at the website, thehedge.io. You can contact me via email. You can contact me um, on social media, whatever floats your boat, whichever is the best way for you. I would just love to hear from you either way. Um, before we jump in the episode, I also just want to give you a little bit of an update on the l- live streams on YouTube, uh, the Friday lunch money. Now, I'll be honest, it's been a bit of a shit show, right? I've not been trying to do it for very long and it's not been going very well. And I think I've realized that trying to do live with uh, everything that I tend to have going on, like my life's a bit crazy. There's always stuff happening that I didn't plan for. Uh, I don't think that's going to work. So for those of you who have dropped in to have a chat, to see me, uh, talking about what's going on in, in the world of money and personal finance. I appreciate it, um, but I'm going to put that on hiatus. Now, I will. I like the idea. So at some point in the future, I think I will have another crack at it. But for the time being, I'm going stick to uh, stick to not taking on too much. So we've got the podcast. That's going to be still coming to you every week, rain, hail or shine. So thank you as always for, for tuning into that. Uh, and of course, there's plenty going on on the website as well as articles going up on there all the time uh, and plenty of content for you to get stuck into if if that's what you're after. Anyway, enough of that, enough carry on. Um, let's get into this week's episode, my interview with Tom Poulter. Hi guys and welcome to this week's episode of The Hedge. This week, I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've had a guest on the show, um, but this week you're in for a treat because I've got somebody who I think you're going to find really interesting. We're going to be doing a bit of a deep dive into investing, investments, stock markets, bond markets, all that good stuff because lots going on. So today on the show, I'm joined by Tom Poulter. Tom, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So do you want to start by giving us a, a little bit of an introduction of yourself, where you're from, what you do, and why it's great to have you on the show? <laughs> yeah, so, so, so my name's uh, Tom Poulter. I work for a sort of fun research company called Square Mile, who are based, as you can guess, in the, in the Square Mile of London. What we do as a firm is we will go out there, our whole team will meet all the different sort of active, passive fund managers, and we have a great insight into what all the people effectively in the city 
are talking about. Um, I've been there eight years, basically since since we launched, um, and we, we keep on going from from strength to strength. So hopefully, I should be able to provide a bit of feedback of of my views and also what generally we we we've been seeing our managers have been saying over the last sort of last three or four months. Because as I was chatting to you offline, Jason, there's a hell of a lot we need to talk about today, and there's a hell of a lot going on, which which all makes it very interesting. Mm, definitely. So I, don't, I do. I do. Obviously, want to dive into kind of all the all the stuff that's going on in the world. But just um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about: you're a CFA, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, the CFA, for those that, that don't know, it stands for Chartered Financial Analyst. And for people who are in the industry, it's kind of it's got this reputation as being very grueling. That the failure rate is like massive. You know, the percentage of people who actually pass the exams um, is is low. Do you want to just talk us through a little bit about about that? Uh, how you found the process of going through it, that sort of thing. I think that'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah. So the the, the CFA is uh, for anyone that doesn't know, it's basically three different levels: um, level one, level two, and level three. Um, they're all multiple choice. Now it's changed slightly in that you, a lot of the my colleagues who are doing it, doing it effectively in the same room that you do your your driving theory test. But when I did it, I did it in a, a massive room in the the Excel in London with sort of four thousand other people, which, as you can imagine, is, is quite <laughs> grueling. And they yeah. have they have the shutters that come down at say at nine o'clock in the morning. And I, I did. There has been instances where you hear of people sort of uh, running through and just going under the shutters. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's as I say, it's a very grueling thing. And if if you if you fail it, you then can't. You have to wait six months on, on sometimes instances twelve months to to pass it. Um, one of the sort of difficulties in it is that it's very broad. Um, mm. So obviously you can, the first sort of, in every test, the first 10% is all about sort of ethics and, and effectively ESG, which is very popular at the moment. And then some of the stuff, your some areas can be on accounting, some can be looking at sort of bonds, some can be looking at um, equities, some looking at portfolio management. So it's it's very broad and I probably, I would say I'd use about sort of 20% of the, the stuff I learned, which makes it difficult. The, the one of the good things about it brings, being so broad is that you have a basic knowledge of a, a lot of different areas and, and things. Um, as I said, as you mentioned, the, the pass rate is extremely low. It's around about the, the 30 to 40% mark. Um, so as you can imagine, it's, it's not like, you, as I said, if you then have to take it in six months time, you you then uh you're waiting a long time so it's it's one of them that i'm glad i do it would i do it again not not at all uh, i've got more of a I'd rather enjoy a bit of my life now so yeah it's 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 definitely if you if people are listening and looking to do it i'd probably recommend doing it because it's it's definitely a standard thing and, and more and more people in the industry are, uh, are having to obtain it so it's definitely something to to look down but i wouldn't go in it think it's going to be a sort of a, a walk in the park because it's definitely not mm. Yeah, whenever you hear like multiple choice, you, you can you can falsely think that would make it easier. But from my experience, not taking exams to the level of the CFA, but if you're doing like questions that you can, you know, essay-based questions, you can kind of bullshit yourself to a few marks. But if you've got multiple choice where often, you know, there's maybe one answer that you know is definitely not right and then you've got three that really could be the could be the right one unless you know 100 percent what you're what you're talking yeah, about yeah definitely and, and and if anyone's ever done a maths exams or remember their maths exams you got you also used to get work marks for showing your workings yeah. unfortunately you can't show your workings so you can get sort of one one little calculation wrong out of a 10-step process and you've you've got the answer wrong so yeah yeah definitely cool okay so look let's get into let's get into it let's get into what's going on in in the world at the moment i think 
there's lots for us to go at first, but let's start with, I guess, it's not the elephant in the room because everybody's talking about it a lot, but, you know, inflation is really the, the, the hot topic, uh, one of the biggest hot topics at the moment. It's obviously impacting, it's impacting everything. I think that's why it's so popular, is, well, not popular, but so, so widely talked about because it's impacting investment markets, it's impacting, you know, central, central banks' decisions, but it's also impacting all of us in our, in our bills that we're paying and our, and our grocery shopping and that sort of thing. So, you know, what are your what are your views on inflation over the next year or two? Are we going to see it keep rising? Are we going to see it coming back to back to earth a little bit? What do you think? So, um, I mean, some of the estimates I've seen is at the back end of the year, just in in the UK, it should be around about sort of CPI seven point four percent, and and next year should be so twenty twenty three four percent, and then in sort of twenty twenty four we'll we'll get back to the normality of about one point five to two percent. I would definitely caveat in to say that in January they were expecting at the end of the year to be about sort of six percent and each monthly announcement it's slightly ticking up and it's ticking up and it's ticking up um so I wouldn't be surprised at the end of the year if we get around about eight percent if you think about the the sort of the calculation of the CPI it's based on the price sort of average price over the last 12 months yeah so for if something's gone up say if something's 100 pounds and it's gone up 10% to 110 pounds to have another 10% growth you have to see that go up to 121 pounds mm-hmm. so naturally the mechanics and the calculations may mean that it's going to slow off just because we can't see this high increase yeah what we have to remember is that even a, a 0.1% inflation means that there is rising prices so mm-hmm. inflation going down doesn't mean your prices are going down it just means your prices aren't going up by as much um, yeah so, yeah, to me, to answer your question, I know a lot of people will go out there and they'll criticise economists for, for getting it wrong. I think it's incredibly tough to get it wrong. And I actually applaud them for at least going out there and, and having an opinion. It's very easy to have a go at something, not having a Tough opinion. to get it right, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so, as I say, it's, it's estimated 7, 7% this year, 4% next year. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's higher. Um, yeah. And, and, and given the, the, the various issues going on in the world, we, we could see a jump. Um, do you think, because um, at the moment we've sort of had, we've had obviously everything to do with COVID and the, the, the supply chain issues that have kind of um, caused some of that. You know, we've had things like the, the lack of HGV drivers and, you know, the, the um, supply chain issues and that sort of thing. We've then had a situation in Ukraine. So in a way, there's these, there's lots of different factors. But, you know, something that I've seen getting thrown around a little bit is that, that there is a decent um, element of the inflation here in the UK that, that is based around Brexit, which kind of has been completely lost in the shuffle with everything else that's going on. Now, you know, aside from the kind of political side of things, do you think that is is having an impact? It's harder to bring in workers, harder to bring in materials, more paperwork at the borders, that sort of stuff? Um, yeah, it's definitely going to... I mean, we we import a lot more from Europe than, than, we, than we export. Um, mm. I that the, the the costs and the, the paperwork were, were mentioned it I'd, as as we mentioned of course my my soon to be wife is is Portuguese and uh, her dad owns a house out there and he's saying that he's going to have to potentially sell it because the, the tax reasons and, and a lot of paperwork so that not only will that added paperwork increase the cost but it will sort of it, 
decrease the supply if everything's taken slightly longer it means you know you might only get you might only get uh, if, if you're doing five deliveries in a month it may may do down to four i would say that potentially that's a short-term issue as these things should potentially be ironed out um and sort of greater agreements have been made um, when i was at the, the airport on tuesday They've, they've extended it and actually the EU and the, the UK were all going through the same border control. So, right. so that's just sort of a, a one-off example to say that over time, we'll, we'll once we get more amicable and realise, you know what, this is we've still got work to go in the future, that things will be a lot more streamlined. So it's potentially sort of a, a one-off cost um, that we're seeing now, but over time it should, should die out. Interesting. Okay. So that, like I said, there's, there's lots of different factors impacting the markets inflation figures all that sort of stuff at the moment the other than inflation as a kind of end result of everything that's going on in the world or a a symptom of everything that's going on in the world we're also seeing kind of the other biggest story at the moment is obviously what's happening in ukraine and um the 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 invasion by russia and how that's sort of, of playing out how much uh, how much is that in how much is that driving the price action that we're seeing in the stock markets at the moment so, I mean, um, um, yeah, the unfortunate events in Ukraine took place around about end, end of February. Um, and what we saw already was that markets were down. Um, mm. And then during sort of early February, March, markets went down even further. What we did see is a backup in, in March where uh, the last sort of three weeks of March, we saw a real uptick in, in equity markets. Some markets were up 8% over a three-week period. So that would, to me, suggest that the initial reaction of the war um, has been sort of seen through and markets have seen through it. And, you know, when that uh, all those atrocities were taking place, initially there was the concern that this... You know, this is going to be World War Three. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully, I don't think we're we're there yet. As it's calmed down, the Ukrainians have done a, a great job of of keeping the Russians at hold. Mm-hmm. What we're now seeing again is we're seeing a further downturn in markets, and I don't. I think that's more to surround. Okay, when we're understanding what are the impacts, so we we now we're fully aware that. And I don't think anyone knew this at the start of the war that, that, that Ukraine are the largest producers of sunflower oil. Okay. And that's why we're seeing sort of hoarding of, uh, I know Tesco's and Sainsbury's have said, you know what, well, we can only give you two bottles a day or something. So that will obviously, what we're now seeing is, an, and, and, and Russia take further actions. I know they've, they've said to sort of Poland and, and Bella, uh, yeah, Poland that you can't have any uh, oil. What we're seeing is more the impact. So the initial reaction, I think markets have seen through that. Now, what we're actually seeing is, well, this war is going to potentially be on for the next sort of 18 months, even longer. And what mm-hmm. are the impacts? And I don't think, I think generally markets are seeing that negatively. Mm. Interesting. It's amazing to me. And every time I, like, I didn't know that about the sunflower oil. And every time I'm constantly being told or reading new information like that, like it's amazing how much, how intertwined the global economy is. Because like sunflower oil, as well it's not just like the bottles of actual vegetable oil that you buy it's like in everything isn't it like nuts and like so many different foods have got that in it so that that one ingredient could then flow through to cause issues in the supply chain for for groceries for loads of different stuff yeah and if you think every every restaurant probably has some sort of something on it. so if they're if they're tiny increases prices is going up there then probably potentially have to increase the price of all their food Um, and and that's Mm. going to have a, a knock on effect so when this kind of situation happens, and really we've, we've sort of had two of them over the last few years, we had the the war in Ukraine, as, as we've just been talking about, and we had the initial kind of first wave of coronavirus where we had this kind of, 
what well, I guess the term that's often used is black swan, whether it was completely uh, unexpected or not, you could argue the point, but sort of the, for those that haven't heard that terminology before, it's when something kind of comes out of left field that no one was really expecting that kind of shocks the market. So you're in there on the ground talking to fund managers. How do they tend to react when these sorts of things happen? So um, each fund manager will, will act differently. Some will, some of the more experienced ones will definitely stay very calm. Mm-hmm. They've, they've, been, they've been through it before um, and they will, some will just not act and they'll especially sort of during these events that the, the days following it are very very volatile so you can have sort of two or three percent daily drops and then it can be followed by a sort of three or four percent daily uprise i think it's quite interesting if you look at sort of the the FTSE 100 in sort of q4 2018 which was sorry 2008 which is very sort of the global financial price crisis for the worst days of the FTSE 100 took place then Mm-hmm. for the last 30 years but six of the best days took place then so it's one of them where a lot of people stay calm because they know okay hang on let's 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 avoid of all this fear um, there's a lot of fear of fear i'm going to lose all my money the next day you have fear of missing out so you see markets up by one percent all right we need to get in because we know that potentially it could go three or four percent and we don't want to miss out um so once the noise has gone gone around, you see a lot of managers who will then go, okay, how can I tactically sort of do it? Has a certain area been oversold? Has a certain stock or company that I, I liked, but previously it was too expensive, got quite cheap. Okay, this is a good opportunity to, to add back in. Or do I think this is just the first stage of a continuous downturn? Therefore, I might sell, sell a few assets and, and go into to cash unfortunately and it really just depends on the the type of clients in the fund but black swan events are typically typically correlated with outflows into their funds Mm, Um, so you'll see a lot of people who who panic and and go for the door they're effectively be forced sellers Mm -hmm. so a lot of the time they're trying to manage it and and it depending on the liquidity profile of the fund and especially if you're more like less liquid stuff such as such as small caps or sort of more unique areas a lot of the times they're having to sell the most liquid stocks uh, not there that might be their sort of best idea but they're selling it because it's liquid and, and unfortunately if, if you get funds where they're basically sold on performance you mm-hmm. get a lot of inflows in and when stuff goes bad you get a lot of inflows out and what we're seeing is a lot of managers spend their time sort of instead of picking securities or picking funds or bonds they're just spending their mon- mon- uh, time selling and buying so um yeah as i say that's something to, to keep up on and one of the things we definitely we, we do get concerned about is if we see massive inflows into a certain type of fund we're as worried if we see massive outflows because we know that there's a lot of effectively performance chases there and we yeah. want sort of funds that have sort of consistent inflows or potentially just sort of consistent outflows mm. Okay. There was something I was going to talk to kind of bring up a little bit later, but it's probably a good good time to ask you now. So, you know, you mentioned there about liquidity profile of the funds, you know, basically how much cash they have available or easily uh, liquidated assets available to pay people who want their money back, basically. Um, I was reading through your research note, the, um, I think it's the most recent one um, that you sent through to me, which was really, really interesting. And one of the things you talked about there was um, the FCA's pending decision on property funds. And this is something that I talk about a lot, um, mainly because I saw how badly it went in 2008 um, and how 
that's a really good example of, of, a, of funds that are investing in very illiquid assets. And therefore, when you have a lot of people looking for the money, it's, it's hard to get it out. Do you want to maybe talk through a little bit, um, that issue a little bit, and kind of what the FCA is looking at with some of these property funds? Yeah, so, so when it, uh, if I briefly just touch on, on property in general, I think yeah. there's, I've seen a, very much a misconception about it sometimes. So I think there's three ways you can invest in property. There may be more, but one is the, obviously the standard buy to let. So you buy a house down the road, maybe you flip it. I know you had, a, you had, you had Laura on a couple of weeks ago talk through it. That's something we, we don't really deal with, and that's more sort of, you know, if, you, if you're interested in homes under the hammer that, hammer that you deal with. Uh, there is also something called a REIT, which is a real real estate investment trust. And what that is, is it's a bit like a stock, an equity, but yeah. then within it, they will then buy sort of loads of different properties. They're buying slightly different properties to your book standard houses. What they're doing is they might buy office blocks or they might buy um, an industrial estate or they might buy an out-of-town retail park. Because it's an equity, it's actually quite volatile. Um, some passive funds will, it, some of the benchmark, the high, the high benchmarks have to hold that fund. So, one of the sort of the REITs I saw had sort of a volatility over the last five years of sort of 27 which is, which is really high and, and higher than sort of global equities. So, I think there's a common mix, misconception with a lot of people where they think I'm allocating a REIT is going to be low volatile, mm. it's going to be safe as houses, it's going to pay off the income. It's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna definitely diversify your exposure from a bog standard equity, but there's still, still a high correlation. Yeah. And then the final one, which obviously you touched on, is is what they call open-ended property funds. So this is again, it's a fund, it's now, and it's daily dealing. So you can buy and sell out of it in a day. Now, you, it may take a couple of days for you to receive your money, but it's priced every day. And they again will buy your sort of your retail parks, your office space, your um, sort of any sort of uh, industrial space and retail as as i say retail parts the problem with that and anyone who's listening will know you can't just sell a house or property or or industrial estate overnight Mm. so investors have the ability to buy and sell overnight but the fund manager cannot buy or sell their property overnight so what we we are seeing is that these funds will typically hold between sort of 15 to 20 percent cash um, which is quite high, and even when they get below fifteen percent, as, as a research team, we, we start to get quite worried. Yeah. Um, so what you see is when you have events such as two thousand and eight. I know that um, during the, the the Brexit vote and during the the, the COVID crisis, um, all three occasions these funds effectively suspended because the amount of the, the investors who wanted their money back they could not sell the properties quick enough to redeem their assets so what they did is they basically said like we're going to suspend them you can't you can't buy any more units or you can't sell any more units you need to give us a sort of a couple of months to get our sort of our place in order um and then we're then going to reopen them the one of the things that the fca looking into is and Unfortunately, and I think there's a bit of frustration within the market that it's taking too long. So in August 20, um, they following the sort of the, the, the falls in February, and March, full of COVID, and then a lot of these funds suspended again. They they took the decision right. We're gonna we're gonna look into this, and there's clearly a liquidity mismatch. What do we do? There still hasn't been, even though it was sort of 18 months ago, um, a firm decision. I think my take on it would be that. You can't have daily daily dealing funds mm. just because I want. If I'm investing in property, 
I want to be invested in property. I don't want to be invested 80% in property and 20% in cash. Yeah. One of the issues is also you are paying fees on that fund. And why should I pay fees when you're holding 20% yeah, cash? Yeah. This is not a criticism of the managers. They are having to do it because of the liquidity mismatch. What I would like to see is that potentially the move to potential monthly or quarterly dealing. Mm-hmm. I think uh, that if you do it, if you push it back a bit more, it gives them the opportunity to sort of hold less cash. I still think they will do, but it means that they, they're not hindered. Uh, I do know that from a sort of a logistical standpoint, I know there's a lot of people who have monthly direct debits, how does that work? Um, it may mean that you just there may mean there's just sort of cash in your platform or yeah the platform has bit. to sweep it every quarter or something. But or every month. a lot of platforms don't ha- charge you for holding cash, and yeah. it's either you hold it on your platform, or you hold it in the fund. Mm-hmm. So um, I think yeah, as I, as I highlighted, the current uh, situation just mm-hmm. doesn't work, um, and there needs to be changes. And I think everyone in the market will just like to understand what the changes is, and then we mm-hmm. can react from following from that. Mm. it's a really interesting one and I mean, quite often what I say when I talk about property is really the only reason why the stock market is more volatile than the property market is just because of the how often it's valued you know yeah. the example I use if there was someone outside your house or my house with a clipboard value, value, valuing it on the hour you know if it started to rain value would drop dog barks next door value would drop sun comes out value goes up you know that's all it comes down to so but it's interesting because that lack of liquidity is what makes property i think often a good investment because it forces people to hold it for a longer period of time and yet and then when you try to create a product that like a reit that gets away from that all of a sudden it starts to look more like an equity and therefore it performs more like an equity so is it really do like as, as you said at the start is it really performing the function of property that you're looking for in your portfolio yeah, as I say, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree with you that more. I, w- I would always add that uh, I'm, I do like property as a diversifier, but anyone who's listened to this, I, who's a homeowner, their largest asset is their, their house. So do you want extra sort of property exposure given that you, you, your largest net asset is your house? Mm. Oh, you add into it further. That's just something I'd, I'd always consider. Yeah, definitely. So... um the other thing I want to have a talk to you about is um, the market specifically looking at the FTSE 100 and the S&P 500. So in the last couple of years, both have performed fairly well, well last year anyway. S&P obviously really good for both years. FTSE 100 had a tough 2020 uh, and we're kind of so far this year, we're seeing um, we're seeing that sort of reverse um, really off the back of what's happening in the US tech sector from what I can see. Do you think what we're seeing in the US tech t- sector is that kind of a bit of a blip? It's something I've been talking a lot about lately. Um, you know, is it a bit of a blip? Are we seeing those industries just becoming more mature, and therefore, you know, the growth profile that they've had is kind of not looking quite as quite as uh, ambitious over the next few years? What's your kind of take on that? So yeah, so this is, I mean, US tech is given how large it's become, it's effectively the US market now. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things we we have to consider is a lot of people. The UK has been been hurt a lot over the last past. Just for some comparison, if you look at the last ten years to the end of December twenty one, the S and P five hundred is up nearly four hundred percent. 
and the UK, the FTSE 100 is up 90%. So that's mm. a massive difference. And when yeah. people are comparing it, the best way to say is, you know, the US are 5-0 up in a football game. You know, yeah. they've done well this quarter. Is that a sort of consolation goal or is that sort of the start of a, of a comeback? Um, so why is the, if we talk about why is the FTSE 100 done really well, the FTSE 100 is full of energy companies. So we all know with higher energy prices, they're going to profit. It's got quite a bit of banks in it now with interest rates going up. Anyone will know that the sort of anyone with a savings account, I doubt they've seen many increases in their savings account. But if you're looking to get a mortgage or a loan, that's definitely increased. So with higher interest rates, banks can definitely take more money. Um, and also, as we've mentioned, the, the FTSE 100 in the UK in general has been fairly battered for the last sort of five or six years if we think the actual brexit vote was sort of june july 2016 so it's still been six years and nearly six years and that's and one of the things we've also noticed this year is that value stocks so these are basically undervalued or, or cheap stocks have done really well mm-hmm. and growth type stocks have done poorly um now for the last 10 years previously growth really outperformed value so everything's been in the the FTSE 100 favor which explains why um, as we're recording this at the end of April, it's actually one of the only equity regions that's up. If we talk about um, the US sort of tech companies, obviously Tesla, yeah, yeah, uh, Amazon, your Facebooks, your uh, Netflix. What we were finding is during lockdown, this was sort of the peak opportunity for them. If you were yeah. going to buy, if you were going to be signed up to Amazon Prime, this is the only time. Yeah. What we also were seeing is a lot of managers were buying what they were called basket basket of stocks and these would be names which they thought were going to do well during um, if covid was coming back mm-hmm. so if there was news surrounding okay the second or third wave you know what they would do is they'd buy these basket of stocks um, because they know they were going to do well and they would sell airlines because they know they were going to do poorly mm-hmm. so i think what was happening is that a lot of people were buying them just not based on any of their fundamentals or were they good companies just because you know, these are the type of, they felt that these are the type of companies that were going to do well during COVID. Yeah. I think as we've come out of COVID, um, I know there's been a lot of discussion, have we reached peak Netflix? Or, um, <laughs> and, I, and I think that's probably the case in that if you've signed up for Netflix, you would have done already now. Um, you've had this yeah. two-year opportunity to, to watch it. Um, mm. And there's sort of greater, greater uh, sort of competition. So what I would, I feel like that, there is still growth opportunity. You know, Amazon is still a large uh, company that's continued to, to generate profit. Um, I think sort of the early last year and, and 2020 that they were over overbought and yeah. now there's a bit of a correction. And that's why we're seeing sort of the, the, the S&P 500 slightly underperforming against the FTSE 100. I would add that against sort of other regions, the S&P 500 is probably on par with sort of Asia Pacific and, and Japan. Um, Europe's understandably actually underperformed the S&P 500. So I think it's more, the S&P 500 hasn't, it's done badly, but a lot of other things has had. So I wouldn't overreact and say this is the end of the, the tech stocks. Um, we're still going to be using technology. Um, you know, mm. that's not going to go away. I'm sure when we had the dot-com bubble uh, and, and crash in 0102, people were saying, isn't it, you know, all these internet stocks are never going to, uh, last but as i say there's this we're still using the internet so i mean and, and then if we if we just go on about the us versus the U, uk long term i'm actually and um, what i don't know if you find you find a lot of so 
if we look at global equities, the, the UK represents about sort of four to six percent of UK equities, but we tend to find that a lot of clients what they have is a, a UK bias. Um, yeah. Some can have sort of within their equity portion, sort of 10, 20, even, even half. Mm-hmm. One of the benefits is that you don't have that sort of currency risk. So um, if the US if the US is up two percent, but you lose two percent on the currency, yeah, yeah, net zero. Um, in the UK, that doesn't impact, so it does tend to be less volatile. What I have an issue with the the UK is we like our steady eddy, um, sort of very boring companies. Mm. The UK has a very sort of high yield, and we like our dividend paying stocks. So the, the yield in the UK is around about three point five to four percent. Mm-hmm. Globally, it's around about two percent. Now, one of the problems is if you're you're paying out dividends. Um, could you not be using that money to, to grow your company? Yeah, yeah. You're only paying out dividends because you, you haven't got any use for it elsewhere. And I, I just look at sort of the, the FTSE 100. If you ever look at sort of the top 10 holdings, they're broadly, you know, there's BP, there's um, Unilever. These are names that have been going along for a long time. Mm. If we look at it in 10 years' time, I expect it will broadly be the same. Yeah. If we look at the S&P 500, they've got the, the US mentality is a lot more, we're not going to pay dividends because we're going to grow. So yeah, yeah. You know, if you look at Netflix, that what was was that? What was that 20 years ago? It wasn't even a company. Look I actually at looked at, you know, I actually looked at this the other day because the last the episode of the podcast that I released yesterday as we record this, um, I was talking about just the, how much the share price has fallen. Um, when do you reckon the IPO was for Netflix? 2008? 2002. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was really surprised at that. It must have been, because I don't know if you remember, they used to just do discs, like email, yeah. uh, postal discs. So it must have been way back then. But they're, yeah, they're $1.21 $1. the IPO was, and it was peaked at like just under $700 last year. Yeah, so I think they bought um, in the UK, there was something called Love Films. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. So it was a mail lord. I, I do remember uh, signing up for that for like a free trial as a student. <laughs> and all the, uh, all the decent DVDs you wanted were out, out of stock. But... Yeah, I mean, yeah. even if you look at Amazon twenty years ago, that was a that was a bookstore. And do you know what? In twenty years' time, there's going to be some sort of company or concept that we don't even know about now. And I suspect yeah. it's more likely, given their their attitude, that it's going to be more of an American company rather than than a UK company. Just because I just think there's a slightly different different attitude. That's not to say that I don't think UK investors should have a uh, sort of an overweight i just sort of think if you if you're having half the equity allocation in uk equities i i don't i'm not sure that's that's the best thing for the long term if you're looking for long-term growth obviously mm. if you're looking for income it's, it's a it's a great opportunity but mm. if you're looking outside of it potentially i'd dampen it down mm. and it goes back to the, the comment you're making before about inflation as well you know as the bigger these companies get the harder it is for them to increase in size you know if Facebook wanted to double in size back in 2012, it was a lot easier to do when they had, I don't know, have many hundred million users to now when they have three billion users. Um, they're sending satellites up into different places like India to try and get more users and it just it just gets tough, doesn't it, for them to keep yep. growing at the same rate? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, if, if you've got 50 pounds, you double it to 100 pounds. So you only need a 50 pound gain. If you've got 100 pounds, you need to double it. You need to double it to, to 200 pounds which is a 100 pound game mm. so and that's one of the and i don't know if you wanted to touch on it but that's one of the things surrounding bitcoin obviously as it grows and becomes larger you're not going to experience the significant gains that some of the investors who got in potentially sort of five ten years ago yeah yeah definitely um yeah i mean let's let's talk about bitcoin why not um because i think that that is one of the 
that is one of the arguments or things I think that gets missed in the shuffle. I think when people, no, I think I see both sides of the coin. Number one, I see people who think that they can invest in Bitcoin now and still get the 100 million percent growth that people had when they invested in Bitcoin like 10, 12 years ago. So number one, that's probably impossible. You can still, there's still the potential, I think, to make a lot of money on it long term, maybe also the potential to lose all the money you put into it. Um, but then the other flip side of that is I think people also don't understand that if it does end up growing to the point where, you know, it's, it's a million quid for one Bitcoin, that means the volatility will go down because it's going to take a lot more new money to actually shift that price, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Bitcoin is a bit like a, a small cap or emerging market in this. It's very new. Mm. Um, and as things become more established, their volatility does drop um i think in in the market i think a lot of people are getting confused with with bitcoin and then cryptocurrencies and mm. and i see a lot of comparisons to what happened in the dot-com bu bubble so in the dot-com bubble um a bubble and then and crashes every if you had an internet if you if you're if you're an internet company you were going up massively and yeah. people are buying you because you're an internet we've now got i don't know thousands if not millions of different cryptocurrencies a majority of them i think i heard something like 20 25 percent of fail fail yeah. each year so and a lot of people are saying well that's bitcoin bitcoin and i'd, I'd add ethereum as well are probably more established and, and, and i i have to admit that i've never i've not read the read any of the bitcoin standard uh, but my conceptual understanding of it is that there is some sort of utility in it in, in the sort of our world whether I, I don't think that we have that sort of massive growth that people experience but i do think that over the sort of 10 15 years time it could easily outperform sort of your bog standard global equities if it does take on off because obviously it's it's more volatile and generally in markets the more risk you take the more return you'll get mm. Yeah, interesting. I did think it was interesting that on your on that research note you sent me, you had the section on uh, on Bitcoin. I think that's cool. I think I think people are kind of crying out to get information from from um, more credible sources because at the moment, you know, if you're looking for Bitcoin content or crypto content, it's like dodgy mates on YouTube or you know websites that are cryptocurrency exchanges and stuff, which obviously have a, have skin in the game, so to speak. So yeah, I think I thought that was good when I saw that. Yeah, I think I think it's very hard to get a very balanced view out there. Mm. Um, you've either got your Bitcoin lovers who, who, if you say anything bad about them, they're going to shoot shoot you down, or you've got people who yeah. just really hate it. And I think the people who hate it, you could argue that they don't quite understand it, and it's a lot easier just to say uh, instead of understanding it. Okay, this is rubbish. Um, actually, if you understand it, and, and the bits that I've read. I can see there's there's use of it in the economy. I, I don't think it's going to take over the world, uh, but I definitely think in sort of ten fifteen years time it will it will have greater prevalence in our in our lives. Mm. So someone who is um, a figure, I would say, in the cryptocurrency world, he likes to he likes to shake the tree a bit. Is is Elon Musk? Um, he's obviously in the new in the headlines this week, the last couple of weeks with with taking Twitter private. Um, I'd be keen to get your thoughts on kind of the mechanisms from taking a public a company, sorry, public to private to start with. So how how will that change how that they can actually run that company? So um, in in some ways, a public company means that anyone can buy 
shares in the company on an exchange. Um, private company, and, and the company I work for is private, means that there's only an exclusive number of shareholders and, and um, effectively you're under less scrutiny. So mm-hmm. um, for legal reasons, Twitter will have to report their, their accounts, but they will not have to do any sort of shareholder updates um, Elon Musk is effectively the shareholder, so he can give himself his own his own update. Um, so they and they don't have the sort of you know they they have no obligation to what the board looks like. You know, they yeah. can, Elon Musk can make what the board what he can do as long as anything he's doing is within sort of a country's legal jurisdiction. I know there's sort of a lot of control over you know is he going to break freedom of speech and, and it's different in different areas, but. He can do whatever he likes to that company as long as it's not breaking the law. Yeah. Um, so one of the things about going private is there's definitely less scrutiny. You could argue that from a financial or investment standpoint, we should not be talking about uh, Twitter anymore mm. because you can't invest in it. So it shouldn't be on the news. Yeah. Um, I, I still think it will be because obviously it's, a, it's it has a high profile influence on us in society. Yeah. But if Twitter makes money, it doesn't really, as me as an investor, even if I was in a passive US fund, it doesn't impact me anymore. So that's something that we we, we have to focus on. Uh, it's it's always going to be interesting to see how, how, he, how he manages it and works it because he's, he's a very interesting character. But that's just another stock that we can no longer access and therefore we, we, we should work. Yeah. So how does that work practically speaking then? Because I, th- I think I, look, I looked at the... Um the top five biggest shareholders. I think Vanguard is the number one and I think BlackRock might be on the list as well. So does that just mean funds that hold it um, would just just be bought out as part of that the buyer arrangement for 55 yeah, so, cents a share or whatever it is? Yeah, so there'll be a, a certain date um, where they'll go, right, this is when the, the buy is going to happen and what effectively happened is that the, the assets will be returned. So if they had 100 shares and they were, say $10, you would have returned the, the $1,000 back to, to the investor. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure, and this is definitely something following this, I'll look into it on mechanics because obviously it's a part of the a lot of benchmarks. So mm. a lot of these benchmarks will rebalance on a quarterly basis. Um, so what you'll typically see is, and it might happen, um, they will use the, so if Tesla was 1% of the market, whatever's 99% will just be, Reweighted, so they yeah. will use that money accordingly. Okay, we need to allocate X percent to all these different stocks. Um, so yeah, as I say, on this, I think how I understand it, on a certain day, it's just returned back to to, to all the investors. Mm. So, do you think I was talking to uh, um, Nick Nick Bradley a number of weeks ago, and he's um, his background is in private equity, um, and you know we're seeing a lot of. A lot of the, the well, a lot of these things that I see that potential issues in the short term with some companies, and Netflix is another good example. Really, is that when you have a public company, obviously the people running that company have an obligation to be, basically be growing that company every single quarter. And if you have a down quarter, they you get crucified for it. And obviously, if you're a private company, you don't you don't have those issues as much. We've seen quite a lot of IPOs not doing as well as as what people would have expected. I watched that. I don't know if you've seen the Apple Plus show on WeWork recently. You know, that was another one that's um, that's kind of quite a story behind it. Do you think we're going to see much of a trend for companies staying private longer or do you think everyone's still going to be looking for that big IPO payday? Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, the one, the, the main one, the UK investors will know is Deliveroo. Yeah. Obviously. 
came up to a big fanfare and then slightly, slightly tailed off. Um, I still think you uh, will want people to, to have that big payday that you may see that if it doesn't take off, they may delay it slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of these private uh, equity investors will, will do it to then get their payday. Um, and they, they buy they buy a private company to then sell it as quickly as possible. Yeah. And, uh, a lot of these are quite ruthless and they will look to make as, money, as much money as quickly as possible. So I can't particularly see there being a seismic change in everyone's just going to stay private. Um, obviously, we've seen it in Tesla. I know famously in the UK, Virgin, uh, Richard Branson took it back private. But these are sort of exam- a couple of examples we're talking over the last sort of 20 years. Um, so I really don't see there being a, you know, there might be a couple around the edges or, or slight delays, but I, d- I don't see there being the, the seismic changes um, and everyone's just staying private. And, you know, people still, a lot of people set up a company to, especially in the UK, to then to then sell it. And, and then a couple of years later, set up another company and sell it. Um, mm. And that's still going to take place. Mm. So... What about ethical investing then? You mentioned it before. It's kind of a hot topic at the moment. I find it, to be honest, I find it really difficult to not buy into because I buy into like the mindset behind it, the the motivations behind it. I really struggle with the application of this. And you probably see this because I'm sure a lot of the different funds that you guys look at approach this in a totally different way. Everybody's got different mindset about what they would include in an ethical portfolio and what they wouldn't. What are some of the issues you see around this area of the industry and how do you guys tend to um, assess these sorts of funds, uh, the ESG funds? So, yeah, so, so there's been a lot of fanfare around these type of funds. Um, I know sort of, and there's been some funds, the last sort of, definitely during during COVID, a lot of the type of stocks that they were invested in would, were doing really well. Um, mm-hmm. So what you are happening is all the stuff they exclude, such as the energy companies with a low energy price, were doing poorly, and then more the growth type companies. So you could argue Apple's really good for the environment because you know if everyone's on laptops, you know you can work from home. That means you don't have to travel. That's one of the. That, that's so, what I find. That's what I find so 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 difficult about this because like you need so much lithium to power all the batteries and then how do you recycle the batteries um it's just it's it's a minefield isn't it really yeah so uh, what there is is there's um it's it's everyone's different interpretations so and Mm. and even in our team one of the the big debates that we have is um and it's it's abortion so some people in our team believe that 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 should be excluded because they're religious and they you know they have their religious views well we've got some some ladies who believe it's it's, it's a woman's right that they should have that sort of opportunity so mm-hmm. one of the things that previously we've definitely seen is very large funds sort of dominate the market if you think of sort of people have probably had a fundsmith or linzel train in the early 10 uh, sort of start of the 2010s there was uh, a fund called the standard life gas fund which was sort of an absolute return fund that took a lot of assets because there is this sort of polarization of views, we're, and I think this is a positive thing, we're not going to see one fund take out, dominate because there'll yeah. be someone who goes, hang on, your top holding, I don't agree with. Yeah. There's What we've definitely noticed is there's, there's two different approaches to it. One of just going, right, well, all I'm going to do is I'm going to exclude what I would call sin companies. So these are your energy, these are your weapons, these are your tobacco, these are your alcohol and your gambling. Mm-hmm. And then what's ever left, I'm just going to invest in. So, and it's a bit like you've got a naughty school kid. I'm just going to exclude you. 
you've got others who are going, uh, actually there's probably three, there's others who are going, actually with the naughty school kid, I'm going to own you because I want to teach you to be better. Um, yeah. So if I'm, if I'm owning you, or I'm going to work with you to make you better. We've also got others that are taken even to the more extreme, where not only are they excluding the bad companies, they're only really investing in in certain type of, of, of solutions. So it may be, right, it's a climate change fund that only invests in positive climate solutions. Um, yeah. So, I mean, overall, what, what we're tending to find is there's a lot of what we call greenwashing and that everyone seems to be uh, now an expert in this place, even though you've probably only been doing it two years. So <laughs> the cynic in me says that you can't, not all your funds, especially very large companies, you can't just change your process overnight. These things yeah. take take time to put through. I'd be interested to see how popular it is over this year. As I mentioned, 2020 and 2021, these, these funds did really well from a performance perspective. Mm. As we've mentioned previously, energy's done really well this year. So all the stuff they've underperformed because all the stuff they've excluded has done poorly. Yeah. Uh, sorry, all the stuff they excluded has done well and all the stuff they own has done poorly. So I don't know whether some of this growth was effectively uh, performance chasers. What would be also be interesting to see, I know that a lot of, and you probably know this from a great position, been uh, in your position, a lot of clients are having, to, you're having to have these conversations with clients around sort of ESG um, and when it becomes sort of more of a legal requirement to have these conversations, we, um, there may be more flows into it what we we did pick up and, and i doubt anyone on the call or, or listen to this will know but a couple of years ago there's a thing called introduced called mifid 2 which um basically meant all clients had to justify value for money uh, yeah. and why a fund or provides value for money we've tended to see a lot of people go passive because they're cheap and it's a lot easier to justify something that's cheap and provides value for money than a full explanation of something that's expensive mm-hmm. so we could see a lot of assets go into these type of funds because instead of having the conversation right let's just assume everyone wants this mm. from our perspective i think we we we're just trying to understand okay what what what's the managers or the funds effectively view on different and is it consistently keeping to that so there's always going to be debate about whether you know is apple a good company i i would argue from an energy perspective apple you know they've got better but anyone anyone who's got an apple phone knows that after two years it the battery goes yeah and it's no surprise to me that they've spent so long they've not improved that because they know that once the battery goes you go out and buy a new apple mm. they do updates that make sort of older phones or older laptops obsolete so there's a lot of argument to say that around the edge and there's always this um confusion so uh, berkshire hathaway which is everyone everyone knows um the, the mind's got black who's the owner of berkshire warren buffett Warren Buffett, yeah. So I can't manage. I can't believe I forgot his name. <laughs> he is obviously the largest, one of the largest philanthropists in the world. Um, but some ESG scores vote that company down very poorly because his governance is is not the strongest, which I find quite uh, interesting. Given mm. that you know you're not investing in that money, or all the profit is going is effectively going back to charities and good mm. causes. So it just sort of that. I think there all, all, is always going to be a minefield. Um, and it's just because we're talking about sort of people's perf- personal preferences. When I joined the industry, people went, "You don't talk about politics, or you don't talk about religion." And effectively, in this area, you're 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 taking people's in some ways political view, and you're taking people's some people's religious views. So it's going to be a mindful 
and I don't believe there's going to be one fund, possibly that, or a couple of funds that dominate the market in this space, which 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 I view as a positive. Yeah, 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 definitely. I think this is the one area where if people are interested in it, it's not the one. It's not one where you can say, okay, my risk profile is X. Therefore, let's have a look at these funds. Yeah, that one looks good. Whack my money. And like, if it is really important, so you do have to look into it. I think um, someone got in touch with me, a listener of the show recently, and they said they were looking at a couple of different funds, one of which was called the XYZ Sustainable Trust or Fund or whatever, and the other one, which was just the XYZ Equity Fund. And Morningstar had given the one that didn't have sustainable in the name a higher sustainability rating. And he was like, how do I do this? And I think that's a good example where you know, there's no legislation around what you can put in the name of your fund. Well, there is, but not in regards to words like sustainable. Um, so you need to go those those layers deeper and say, like you said, look at the top holdings, look at look at what what is actually in there. Um, I think for us as advisors, it's really tough as well because it's not enough for a client to come to us and say, Jason, I you know, I want to invest in an ethical way, I want to make money, but I don't want to feel like I'm making the world a better place, which is often kind of how broad people have thought about it. It's just that I want to have a positive impact rather than a negative one. And if I then take that and pick an ethical fund that I think is a good fund, that's not enough because I've not actually drilled down. You know, if the FCA looked at that, they'd say, well, you've what are the person's actual preferences? They said they want to make a world more a more positive place, but does that mean they have a problem with climate change do they uh, have a problem with adult entertainment are they non-smokers like what does it actually mean and i think it it almost needs to get quite formulaic the process where we almost have a tick box that says you know tick the ones here that you have the problem with you want us to exclude and then companies like yours can give us a list of funds that okay well here's our filters which funds in the universe can we actually can we actually potentially recommend but i think we've got a way to go until we we get to something that's streamlined really yeah and and, and one of the, the things that we've definitely this year we've noticed the more extreme you go the greater divergence you've had in performance so mm-hmm. some of these funds that have gone to the real extreme have really underperformed and then that's when some clients have been well that's when you feel are they really ethical or are they just yeah, also yeah. Involved in, the, in the performance as well which is in some ways why just the exclusion only approach works um, there are a number of sort of passive funds i know from sort of uh, lng and, and vanguard out there that all they do is sort of they they, they will exclude and, and the lng ones do positively tilt but they are going to be broadly um within your sort of um yeah yeah your wristbands of global global equities or uk equities so they're they're fairly cheap they're going to perform broadly in line with global equities and they're, they're doing a thing I, I i do think if you look at the world there's sort of 10 percent of the population who don't care at all there's 10 percent of the population who want to do the extreme and sort of be philanthropists and then there's the 80 percent who just want to know that they're doing something good yeah they don't really understand what they want to do good but they want to they want to know that they're potentially leaving the, the world in a better place than when they, they joined it mm. yeah definitely something that will change a lot over time i think so look um it's been really good having a chat with you today, Tom. There's one last thing that I wanted to um, wanted to kind of touch on. We've talked about kind of the um, the projections or the the plans or expectations, I should say, for um, for inflation. I'm going to ask you the question. I'm sure you hate getting asked. What do you think the stock markets are going to do over the next 12 months? What, what what's what's your view on what the kind of performance we can expect? So. Um... 
overall, I'm, I'm probably more on the. I would. I'm not overly positive. Mm-hmm. I do think that the the cost of living crisis will continue potentially longer than, than people expect, and it's not just a UK crisis. It's it's a global one. And yeah. If you're having to spend more on your energy bills or your petrol, it's, it's going to give somewhere, and that means okay. Do you only go to the pub every other weekend instead of every other week? Um, we will see interest rates rise so i think the expectations is around at the end of the year in the uk to be about 1.25 to 1.75 but again on the inflation point these estimates have been going up even more i know that will hit a lot of people who have mortgages or looking from your mortgages or debt i do see that the rise in interest rates generally is a positive thing at such low levels the central banks effectively can't do anything they've had to Mm -hmm. just use qe if anything so i think we do need to get it up to a a notable level that that means if there is another sort of recession or, or we need to dampen it down they they have that tool um and, and i think we touched it what we have been seeing is um the an inverted yield curve so what will happen is imagine if you you go down to that west and they offer you a two-year bond or a 10-year bond we've been noticing instead of it being that west it's the uk government or the us government we've been noticing that you're actually getting a better rate to lock your money away for two years compared to 10 years, which seems a bit counterintuitive. And that's because the markets believe that in the long term, you know, there's going to be a recession and, and they're going to have to cut rates. What the the sort of the understanding, if that continues for a one month period, um, it's uh, over the last 50 years, every time that's happened, there's been a recession. Okay. Now, at the moment, it's not inverted, but at the start of the month, it was inverted. So it's, it's getting there, but, but not consistency. The only sort of ray of light I, I would have is that how will the consumer react to this? So firstly, what we we picked up is that a lot of uh, the, the, the the normal people on the street, they, they still have the ones that didn't lose their job during COVID or the ones that were furloughed. They still have these large cash balances. People are sort of understanding why this, why is this, to, why have they still got their cash balance? I think a lot of people still want to go on holiday. And mm-hmm. that is probably about now is the only opportunity. I also do think that people, they're still sort of using up vouchers that for stuff that were cancelled in 2020 or 2021. So yeah. I've got a, a 10K run on, on, on Monday that I was meant to do in 2020. Um, and I haven't paid any more for it. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm going on a, I'm going on a stag day in Newcastle at the end of the month, which is sort of, um, I'm not having to pay for the, the, the accommodation or, or some of the events we're doing because we paid that two years ago mm-hmm. so hopefully people will use these cash balances and say Do you know what? i'm still going to keep on spending because i've got this this cash balance and people may have the attitude of and, and hopefully the people the people that do this are the people that have uh, spent have their income is greater than their sort of out, outgoings they might go Do you know what i know it's going to be tough but instead of sort of saving i'm just going to effectively use that money because i've been held up for the last two years and yeah but more of a sort of a a yolo approach um (laughs) hopefully the people who take that are the people who as i said their their income is higher than their their outcome you don't want people going into debt um but yeah generally i'm I'm probably not that positive i think we we potentially will have a low growth environment or or a recessionary environment um so yeah i mean i'm sure if you spoke to me in six months time i could get it completely wrong and markets could just go up and we could see through it or we could have another sort of black swan event it's it's very unnerving and, and i would definitely say that given there's so much sort of volatility and unknowns this is not the time to be making those bold calls um mm-hmm. because you could easily get it wrong and, and sort of 
everyone knows that compounding is your friend, but if you underperform by sort of 10%, you've got to outperform by 11.1% to make up that up. So yeah, compounding's great when it's doing well, but when it's against you, it can, it can really work against you. So we're definitely taking the view of, you know, we're going to allocate to the best managers and, and, and see who's out there, but we're not going to swing the bat and go completely out of bonds or everything into cash because things can easily work against you. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's uh, it's important taking it into context, isn't it? We've had two really strong years. So it's, you know, if you're looking in a, a five, 10 year period, you're not going to have five or 10 years of, of just a nice constant upward stream. There's going to be these down times and it's the payoff for, for the good times you have, really. Yeah, I mean, I mean, since the financial crisis in 08, 09, we've, we've had it so good. Um, and mm. returns have just been so much higher than expectations. So fortunately, it's just a, a nature of the markets that, they you don't you, they don't go up constantly in an even pace they go up and then they they drop back down so it's just about staying invested and not making those bold calls yeah definitely look thanks so much for coming on the show tom i've really enjoyed that i think that's been a really um it's been interesting for me i think it's gonna be really interesting to to listen to the show so i really appreciate your time um do you guys offer do you have much available for for retail investors do you do you know i'm sure you do lots of research papers and that sort of stuff or is it mainly mainly just uh, industry people that your your research is geared towards um, yeah, so yeah, so I mean, you have to be uh, you have to be in a uh, an institution or or ret- uh, sort of a, a full time investor to be able to access our website. But um, so yeah, it's more to the the more industry experts. I mean, we do have um, and hopefully you can put a link. We do have a quarterly podcast. I mean, we're not as infrequent as you, where we just sort of a lot of the time go through what I've talked about. I think anyone can anyone can listen to. Um, and yeah, if anyone wants to to get in touch feel free to i'm on i'm only on really on linkedin so if you just look up tom polter from square mile on linkedin i'm happy to have sort of chats with with anyone or if anyone has any questions i'm happy to to get involved good stuff well guys i'll put the link to uh tom's links linkedin profile and also to the podcast in in the show notes if you want to check those out definitely uh especially the podcast i'm sure there's plenty of good stuff on there so thanks again for your time tom really really appreciate it no thanks for having me and keep up the good work it's, it's good to hear uh, an interesting point of view taken on in the podcast world quite straight talking compared to others (laughs) good stuff thanks mate appreciate it right guys that is the episode for this week thanks again for tuning in and listening to that interview i think there's loads of stuff in there you know i think tom um considering the the level of kind of education and technical knowledge that he's got he's got a a really uh, good way of explaining things that you know normal people like uh, like you and me can understand so i really appreciate it tom coming on the show giving us his thoughts on what uh what the the next sort of short term looks like and uh, i think there's a lot for us to take from that um as as investors as always guys if you have questions that you'd like me to answer on the show or uh, questions you'd like me to get guests to answer. So, you know, even if you have a question that you think maybe is not necessarily up my alley, um, maybe it's something to do with finance or, uh, you know, money of some description, but not necessarily a question you would ask a financial planner, you do feel free to ask it to me. You know, I may, number one, I may know the answer. Um, I've come across a lot of random stuff in my time working in this industry, um, but also it gives me a bit of a steer of the kind of guests that you want to get on. You know, if I'm getting lots of questions about mortgages, 
you know, probably a good idea for me to get a mortgage broker on. You know, if I'm getting a lot of questions uh, about real estate, uh, you know, maybe that means I should be getting someone um, on to talk about real estate. If I'm getting lots of questions about car leasing, maybe I should get someone to come on and talk about cars. Um, whatever the case may be, if you have questions that is anything kind of remotely related to what I do, what I talk about, then please do get in touch with me. The best way to do that, as I always keep saying, is to go to the website, thehedge.io. You can get in touch with me on the website via email, via social media, all the links to everything is over there. Um, and as always, guys, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to me, listen to the interviews I have, listen to the show. Really, really means a lot to me. Thanks always, guys. Look forward to speaking to you again next week.